0: murder, divorce, drugs. Our courts are full of stories, scary, sad, and hilarious. Most are tales stranger than fiction. These are True Law Stories, brought to you by videocasestory.com, the ultimate resource for customer and client video stories. Welcome to True Law Stories. I am Garlic here, and today we're with my good friend, an amazing Federal Criminal Defense Attorney, former U.S. attorney, former prosecutor, uh, Vince Citro of Horwitz Citro Law Firm. Vince, thanks for being on.
1: Hi, and thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure to chat with you.
0: Always a pleasure. And I'm excited for this, not only because it's crazy stories about, (laughs) one's about a CIA officer, one's about another attorney being accused of murder, crazy stories. But also, I'm hoping for a little humor in here because Vince is also a very funny guy. We've worked together in the past. I'm like, Vince, you can't be funny at this park. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thanks for sitting at the bar.
0: <laughs> uh, awesome. So Vince, before we get into the stories, uh, let's get a little bit about your background. Cause I mean, you have a pretty impressive background.
1: Thanks. I uh, you know, generally moved to Orlando in 2001 and started in a large commercial law firm. After about a year and a half, I went over to the US Justice Department where I was a federal prosecutor for the next 14 years. I worked in federal courthouses from Jacksonville down to Miami, and I had two assignments in Washington, D.C. During that time, I was a criminal division supervisor for almost five years. I tried a number of cases to verdict. I did everything from violent crimes, uh, large scale international gangs conducting hits, to corrupt police officers, to fraud cases. I worked, uh, my last assignment was in the National Security Division in Washington, D.C., where I worked. With folks assigned to counterterrorism, uh, counterespionage, armed export controls, our nation state secrets, and military hardware going overseas. And uh, I also worked in the criminal division in Washington, D.C., working on federal murder cases throughout the United States. I've been in private practice since 2016. Out of the 120 some odd thousand lawyers in the state of Florida, I'm one of among about 430 who are board certified in criminal trial work. I'm a one. I think 18 in the state that's board certified both nationally and in Florida. In fact, there's a US Supreme Court case that says that national certification means something and and means that the lawyer's backgrounds and bona fides can't be reasonably questioned. So uh, I predominantly practice here out of Orlando, Florida, although I get to practice all over the United States. I have clients in China, Belize, South Africa uh, and the United Kingdom right now.
0: That's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, amazing story. And I'm sure you have thousands of stories, some of them to tell us, you'd have to kill us afterwards.
1: (laughs) I'm a peaceful guy.
0: (laughs) Well, you would send someone, the the government, (laughs) the U S government would send someone. Uh, (laughs) So, you know, all these years of seeing bad people do bad things. And we'll talk about, you know, and sometimes good people, like we're going to talk about, get accused of bad things. What made you go into private practice?
1: I really enjoy constitutional law and I I very much enjoy the criminal aspects of it, the fourth, fifth, and sixth amendments. And while I enjoyed my time in government service, I felt the calling. It was time to do more and evolve my practice and evolve my skills as a lawyer. And really to do that was to help those who were unnecessarily, in some cases, facing down the barrel of the U.S. government and all of its might and resources behind it. I had prosecuted corrupt law enforcement officers. I had worked with people who, unfortunately, I I didn't think had the right ideals in mind. And so I, I thought there was a niche that needed to be filled and that I was uniquely suited to fill it.
0: And when you say not the right ideals in mind, what do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, you had some prosecutors who were always looking for that feather in their cap, that uh, you know, we, we, we might not win this case, but we got to charge it and do it just because we got to make the community happy, which is always the wrong answer. Uh, and one that never sat well with me, both from an ethical standpoint and also from what we as lawyers are, are constitutionally mandated to do.
0: Yeah, and I mean, and that's why, I mean, I love talking to you and you and Mark are, are fantastic because you're such professionals in this, but there's a lot of people with ulterior motives. And we'd like to think that everyone, especially on the prosecutor, Prosecutorial side, I can say that word sometimes, uh, are professionals. But, you know, we talked with Doug Richards out and uh, attorney out in Denver, former federal prosecutor, too. And he says there's a lot of people that, you know, prosecutors that do it also for political motivation, right? Oh, absolutely. To-
1: I-, I convicted uh, both federal and state law enforcement officers for committing various corruptive crimes. And uh, the fact of the matter is their badge didn't have a little placket underneath it that said bad cop." And and really, prosecutors are no different. Their credentials all look the same. And so, you know, while there are an overwhelming majority of people who act ethically, who act in a way that really would make, I think, the taxpayer proud that they represent the citizenry as a whole, that's just not true of everybody. And that's just the reality of our criminal justice system.
0: And the reality of life, right? It's in right. any position, you have really good people and you have a couple of bad people and they, they ruin it for everyone. <laughs> like like our parents always say, you're gonna ruin it for everyone. That's right. That happened. <laughs> and you know, we we were talking before, now you teach as well, and you were talking about before because I think this is interesting. We all assume when we see someone on TV, right, that they're guilty mm-hmm. when we see them in handcuffs. How do you overcome that? How do you, you know, overcome that personally and also overcome that you know, in the news.
1: From a personal standpoint, I've had experience on both sides, both as a prosecutor, as a defense attorney, being convinced that somebody wasn't as guilty or sometimes not guilty of what I initially had thought they had done. And so from a personal standpoint, it's easy to approach things with an open mind, look at what the actual evidence is, sort of parse out that grandstanding for the press and, uh, and all the nonsense that goes along with, with what is today our modern criminal justice system. Part of that is, is peeling away the layers of, of the community outrage to, to look at factually what took place and apply the law to those facts. And what I tell my students are you know, everybody's prejudiced in some way. And, and that means our criminal justice system, which is run by human beings, has baked in prejudices that we can never take out of it. And how many of you, when you see somebody in handcuffs, instinctively think that person must have done something or they wouldn't be arrested? And in federal court, which is where the bulk of my practice is, uh, it is something I deal with with jurors who, who go, surely, if this person hadn't done something, there wouldn't be a Justice Department prosecutor and an FBI agent sitting at that trial. Surely this federal judge sitting upon this perch would have, would have stopped the case before it got to us. And so I think you have to embrace that that is what is baked into the system. And that's the only way you can start to deal with it when you're in a courtroom full of
0: both jurors. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, that's, it's a tough uphill battle, especially when you're defending people that you know are innocent. And so let's talk a little bit about those cases that you had. Let's talk about, you know, you had an attorney that was possibly going to be accused of murder.
1: Sure. Yeah. so I, I had the privilege of representing a lawyer. The lawyer had been representing somebody accused of committing murder. And the lawyer did what the Constitution demands. Remember, the criminal defense lawyer is actually in the Constitution. The right to a defense is a constitutional right. The Mm -hmm. prosecutor's job isn't in there. Uh, It's just the defense lawyer. And so the the defense lawyer was doing a, a thorough defense investigation, looking at whether what the police said was true was indeed and in fact true. The police didn't like that. And indeed, the police made a number of missteps in this murder investigation, uh, some, some real absolute bungling of the investigation. And when it got called to light, the way to sort of deal with that is they doubled down on that mistake. Not, they just, they just could not have possibly been wrong. What had to have happened is the criminal defense lawyer must have helped his client with the murder. And so in a, you know, from a very troubling point of view, the police wrote up a report advocating that the lawyer, the criminal defense lawyer, should be charged as an accessory after the fact to murder. So the, the client of the attorney allegedly committed the murder. Months later, after the person's dead, the police said, Well, we need to charge him with accessory after the fact. Uh, we conducted a very thorough defense investigation, we got some experts involved. As a result of that, the governor's office became involved and had to reassign the case away from the state attorney's office to a different state attorney's office. The police agency that was investigating it it got transferred to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. We were able to sit down with the elected state attorney, the supervisory prosecutor assigned to the case, and the FDLE agent assigned to the case and have a very thorough, candid discussion, and we had written them a, a rather lengthy report demonstrating Factually, where the police were wrong, legally, that is, as a matter of law, all of the courts that had rejected this nonsense theory. And then also talking about it from really the constitutional perspective the danger that what they were doing posed to our system of justice and the presumption of innocence. And ultimately, those who were responsible for pushing the case forward decided not to bring any charges.
0: Wow. Wow. But I mean, that's scary. I mean, that that must be scary as an attorney to face something like that.
1: Of course. I mean, my client was a a successful lawyer, still is a successful lawyer. Uh, You know, he's a criminal defense lawyer. I'm a criminal defense lawyer. So here's the police trying to charge a criminal defense lawyer with committing a murder after the fact. I would be lying if I said it didn't cross my mind. What were they going to try to charge us with if we got in here and and vigorously defended on a client. Now it's a fleeting thought because you can't be afraid of the repercussions of doing your constitutional duty. And so uh, I was a privilege and an honor to help this person. He's a father, uh, he, he's a husband, uh, and um, you know it, it weighed significantly on him. And when I see him uh, to this day, I, I still can't help but smile uh, because we, we were able to right really a wrong. And that's one where I don't think the police went out with this bad motive of, I'm going to rid the world of criminal defense lawyers. But I do think they went out with the improper motive of rather than critically looking at what they did and accepting that they made a mistake, tried to double down on that mistake. And as a result of that, try to get an innocent person charged. There's a police motto, you may beat the rat, but you're not going to beat the rye, meaning you might win the case, but you're still going to go to jail. And I, I think that was their mindset going into trying to get this, this lawyer charged, And it was a a privilege and an honor to defend him.
0: Yeah. Oh man. What was, you know, well, it, to the point of, because I've talked about this in previous episodes, you know, when someone goes down the path of accusing someone of something, it, it, it becomes harder and harder for them to backtrack and say, Oh, I, I did something wrong. Doesn't it?
1: Oh, absolutely. The system is, is built on rewards for convictions. Uh, you, know, you don't hear many police officers or prosecutors get awards for dismissing a case against a wrongly charged person. Indeed, I, I never heard of one. And yeah. so uh, what you do get that incentive of is, well, you had the most convictions in the office. You had the longest trial in the office. And what's even scarier is you had a learned professional as a defendant. I mean, we watch these shows in the evening, uh, American Greed, about the, the, the financial investor the the doctor, the lawyer. I mean, these are prized defendants uh, and prized convictions in the criminal justice system. And so, yeah, it, it does get harder for them to walk away. And as a result, uh, they they double down on that mistake.
0: That's a, yeah, it's super interesting and scary. Yes. Uh, but I mean, that's where you know, and all, like you know, and that's why I love talking to you and to great criminal defense attorneys. Is because we always, I think, the criminal defense. Field is put on display as like you're defending criminals, but it it's this defending people that just were in the wrong space at the wrong time, and someone's coming at them, and they did nothing wrong, and and that's that's well, you know, so important.
1: Candidly, in in the attorney's case that I represented, he wasn't in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was indeed at the the right place at the right time doing his job, and the police and the police department's lawyer took a dim view of that. How dare you challenge our authority? And so uh, that's what I think makes it even scarier. I think we all kind of know that is a, a fact of life. Some people are going to be caught at the wrong place at the wrong time and have something bad happen to them. Mm-hmm. This lawyer was at the right place at the right time doing what the Constitution mandated this lawyer to do. And indeed, we were, we were fortunate to be backed up by groups like the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. Uh, so we had some tremendous folks who, who we had look at our work and go no you guys are absolutely right and this is bigger than it's a big deal to this lawyer rightfully should be but it's an even bigger deal to what we hold as an invaluable part of our criminal justice system
0: wow and tell me a little bit about that moment when you found out that the charges were being dropped and, and, was, you, and, your, and your client did
1: yeah it was a team of lawyers involved there were uh, my partner mark uh, another uh, dear friend and good lawyer that we work with warren Lindsay. And so we had gotten the email all at the same time from the prosecutor to give the prosecutor a call. And all three of us were in different places. All three of us lit up the phone at the same time. I forget who got through first. I know I got through last. Uh, And and it's, you're the third one to call. And I said, well, you might as well then just repeat what you've said twice before. And uh, the smile that went across my face really was indescribable. I mean, very few moments in my life have I been sort of that euphoric and happy. Uh, I'd put it behind the birth of my kids uh marry my wife, but it was it was in those those top moments of life. And That's amazing. My my client, I, I called him the next day. I got you know called him that day. He had heard and I called him the next day and just said, hey, um just a reminder, we didn't dream that it's over. And uh I, you know he he thanks me to this day for what we did uh, and oh. really what he trusted us and let us do.
0: That's so life changing. That's phenomenal. And, and then you also worked with a CIA agent, correct? That, that's, that's amazing too.
1: Uh, a former CIA officer. Uh, he had been in the, in the CIA for a number of years and uh, he has done some public media. And so it had been revealed before I represented him that he had been in the counterterrorism direct area, both he and his wife. And, and In fact, they had saved 150 Christians from being slaughtered in Erbil by uh, terrorists. And so really wonderful person, a tremendous American, and someone I'm privileged to call a friend. And as a result of of work he had done overseas was under investigation by our government and a foreign government. And so I had to work hand in glove with a lawyer who is licensed in the European Union. We met a number of times, but probably the most significant meeting was in Washington, D.C. at the U.S. Justice Department. Uh, My colleague, uh, Toby Cadman, was on one side, uh, sitting next to me, rather, on the other side were prosecutors from the Office of International Affairs, the Criminal Division, the National Security Division, and the U.S. Attorney's Office, which are all part of the U.S. Justice Department. The FBI was represented there by special agents, and this foreign government brought their special prosecutor and the chief special prosecutor over. So they're equivalent of, uh, I guess, who we would think of in modern times as Bob Mueller. And uh, we had a rather spirited exchange uh, of, of uh, where we thought our positions were, both from a factual point of view and in a matter of law. And uh, we, uh, we, we left with an agreement that ultimately the government could not uh, hold up its end of the bargain. And so everything sort of fell apart. And we then proceeded to a, a, a number of rounds of um, barring, if you will, for lack of a better word, talking about our legal positions and what we would and would not agree to, working out terms of uh, international law, whether we would appear in embassies or, or how things would take place. And years later, my client still has not been charged, either by our government or the foreign government. Uh, and, and he has been able to go on and, and have a successful post-government career. And it's wonderful to see him be successful uh, and his wife successful in in their chosen fields after leaving government service and and doing government service really at an amazing level.
0: And so, you know, obviously there are a lot that, go. you know, when you first get that call of what's going on, you know, what are the first steps? How do you even unravel something like this has so many different facets and so many people you have to talk to and probably things that you can't find out that you maybe need to know?
1: Uh, you know, A lot of it is uh, based on your education, your training, and your experience. You instinctively collect facts from your client and start to understand from the client's perspective what took place. You have to open a dialogue with the government and tease out as much information as you can. Some prosecutors will uh, be candid with you. Those are the ones who are usually most sure of their cases, the ones who have done the, the homework and really are, are the ones who are uh, are fairly confident in what they've done and don't mind telling you because I, I don't have a time machine. My client doesn't have a time machine. I can't go undo facts. And so really good prosecutors will tell you, here's what I've got. You know, you make a decision whether you want to come in or not, but I've got enough to go forward. The ones who really sort of shroud their case and play hide the ball, or generally the ones who are leisure of their case, have done the least amount of legwork and are kind of hoping you just capitulate and come in and Hang your client over on a silver platter. And there's a number of lawyers who do that and that's why they do it, um, is they know a number of defense lawyers will just fall prey to that. They'll get their fee and, you know, rake their client over the coals and move on. And so uh, in that case, you, you get the client's information, you get as much as you can from the government, you start to identify what laws you've got to deal with. Is it, are there state laws we have to deal with, federal laws, in this case, we have federal and international laws. There ended up being a state, uh, Involvement later on that we quickly got uh, removed from the the investigation and then it's coordinating with all of those different equities and stakeholders to make sure that you have seen as much of the puzzle as you can inevitably, as you point out some pieces are going to be missing, but Based on what you're able to build you can tell what's going to be in that missing piece and then you devise a strategy to deal with it. Anytime you're, you're dealing with someone like a, a former CIA officer or a government employee or even a defense lawyer like we just talked about, I mean, these are, these are successful people. These are people who instinctively feel like uh, they know the answer and they know what to do. And they're often, either because they're personally involved or not involved in this area of the legal system, unaware of the pitfalls and dangers that face them. And it's your job to educate them and to get them comfortable with trusting the advice that you're giving them and um, bring them along for the ride. Make sure they understand why you're making recommendations about certain decisions, and why you're confident it's the right decision. And in both of those cases we've talked about today so far, you know, it, it was, and, and the right thing happened.
0: And you know, when you when you're going against foreign governments and the U.S. government, and you're talking to all these people, you know, how do you manage? understanding each of their aspects? I mean, especially like a foreign entity. I mean, I guess your background has some of that in it, yeah. but I mean, did you bring in other experts? How did you do that?
1: So part of it was we we did uh, we, we divided and conquered in our respective areas of, of influence and expertise. So the lawyer in the EU opened up a dialogue with that government. He and I were constantly in communication, making sure things he did over there wouldn't adversely impact what I was doing here. What I was doing here wouldn't adversely impact what he's doing there. And so really it's building a team of people and trusting that the team that you've built has core competencies that you need to rely on. And so letting go where it's appropriate to let go, you know, constant dialogue and and communication between the two of us and our, our respective employees and experts that we use understanding sort of what happened in the world at that time. Uh, In this particular investigation, it involved something that took place in the foreign government. So uh, a lot of research into what took place, what what was in the press, what was in the media, what the government was reporting, and then knowing what our government was reporting and what was in our press and understanding sort of the atmospherics that both governments were operating under and then trying to dispel uh, what was not correct about impressions that led to those atmospheres that they had to deal with and so uh, it, it's not easy uh, it, it does instantly open up a minefield of things that if you don't have experience in immunities and uh, treaties and extraditions and preparing for an extradition uh, it, it can be really tricky and, and something that uh, you know can really work to the client's detriment if they don't get a lawyer who's got that experience
0: yeah because it's like and you have to quickly adapt to foreign law and how that foreign you impact the foreign law and the foreign law impacts you. And like you're saying immunities, and but it's great. And, and, you know, in all of these, you know, it's, there's complexity, but also there's, you know, defending the rights of someone who hasn't been accused, Um, you you know, how often or uh, defending the rights of someone who's, you know, not pretty much not guilty, you know, just, you know, doing their job. Um, how often does that happen? How often do we see things like this in the world? And how often do they go the other way?
1: We see it often. In fact, I recently, I want to say it was the end of, I'm sorry, beginning of last month, was prepared to go to an administrative trial for a client who was doing his job and through no fault of his own, someone died. And so the company is represented by a large law firm, and we work with a lot of the large law firms on a regular basis, brought us in to represent the employee. Now, the company is going to handle the multi million dollar civil lawsuit that follows. I handled the criminal investigation of the employee and then the resulting administrative proceeding that the state tried to bring. I ended up foreclosing any chance of a criminal prosecution. And when we went to the state administrative trial, they had to dismiss it. They couldn't prove the elements that were necessary based on the facts of what took place. Now, they waited until the hearing to do it. They didn't drop it beforehand. They refused to have an open dialogue with me about the case, the facts, the law. And we actually showed up there. In this case, there was a presiding judge. And uh, ultimately, the judge dismissed the case when, when the state couldn't prove what the state needed to prove. So it happens more often than people realize people see the news and you get these quick sound bites of, of what took place 10 seconds 15 seconds and people form an impression and you know really the news doesn't go into court they don't meaningfully reveal what's in the pleadings or have it analyzed you just get these quick sound bites and 60,000 foot perspectives and so you see people say things like well i can't believe that person wasn't convicted well As a lawyer who sits in court, who knows the rules of evidence, who understands the presentation of evidence, it's not a technicality that that person walked. I mean, the fact of the matter is when people say, oh, they walked on a technical issue, well, the technical issue means their rights were, were, were were protected and the government was trying to short circuit or shortcut those rights. Uh, or meaningfully, if it wasn't on a technicality, if it was because the evidence wasn't there, it means the the government failed in its burden to prove the case beyond and to the exclusion of every reasonable doubt. And so it happens a lot, especially in our system where ninety, I think, eight percent of criminal cases resolve in a plea. The incentive to plead guilty is so great because the consequences of losing a trial mean a far worse sentence often.
0: Yeah. Oof, it's scary. Well, uh, since I've got a couple more minutes with you, I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay. And since you're a former prosecutor, I, I'm sure you saw, you know, that's why I always hear when I talk to, uh, you know, former prosecutors, that their craziest crazy stories when they were a prosecutor. I would love to know if you could share one of your crazier stories as a prosecutor.
1: So I would say uh, crazy. All right. I um...
0: Or funny. Yeah. yeah I'm no. sure you've got some good ones. I've
1: got some, some doozies, uh, but... I would say probably one of the most bizarre ones I had, Uh, I was on call and uh, got a call in the middle of the night. There was a a little boy. He was five when he was taken from his mother and he was taken by his father. And uh, they, he, he abducted him from New York. And in the time that had passed, uh, the father had left several false trails out of the United States. And, um, as a result of that, there were a lot of energy was expended by, in this case, the FBI trying to track down where this young man was and several offices, several people, I think a lot of resources had been invested in it. The young man had a birthday been told on his birthday that his mother was dead and um, had grown, you know, he's now six. And the tenacity of the FBI was incredible. The last false trail, what they thought was a false trail, was out of the Orlando area. And sure enough, found the father and and the little boy. And so got the call, was up in the middle of the night getting warrants signed in front of a judge. Uh, I'll never forget, we were in the FBI office. It's uh, now Monday morning at about 4 a.m. The arrest happened about two hours earlier. And so the FBI is, is cataloging the evidence. I'm then making copies and putting evidence tags on it because we've got to be in court for a hearing a couple hours later. And so uh, we were, we uh, ended up having the, the, the father uh, committed to custody. He had to be transported back to New York where the crime took place. And all of it was stuff that we had to do quickly for hearings that he demanded, rightfully so, here in the Orlando area. When it was over, we got to take the little boy to the airport and told him his mom was coming. Oh, and my God. He, he cried. Christ, My, my mom, is, my mom's dead. And uh, to know his mom was coming and to see his mom for the first time in that little boy's reaction. It was not a story that was ever going to make national news. The Department of Justice was never going to regale it as one of its greatest uh, convictions or cases in the history of the department. But it was one that I will always remember. I, I know the little boy's name. We took some provisions to help protect the family to ensure that the threat of kidnapping, and there was still an, a, a very active threat of kidnapping involved, uh, to try to help them out. And so, uh, a year later, a little less than a year later, we had sent through an agency a birthday card for the little boy, and the mom called me up, and I and she couldn't tell me where she was, and I didn't want to know. And she wanted to let us know that she got the card. The agent and I had signed it, and we asked if he remembered his trip to Orlando. And he remembered a couple of things. One of the Airlines put him in the cockpit while we were waiting and and did stuff like that, but but had no memory of anything else. And we said, well, then we'll never send a card again and he'll never hear from us again because we should be something. Hopefully he forgets and goes on and lives his his life unanchored by what took place here. And so um, that one was probably the one that's the most, I'd say, crazy memorable story I've got.
0: That's a heart, you know, heartwarming. That's everything rolled in one.
1: Yeah.
0: Wow. That's amazing. Uh, Well, Vince, this has been fantastic. Thank you for sharing your stories with us.
1: Thanks for having me. It's always great to chat with you.
0: Always fun. Always fun. You know, maybe we'll come back next time and have him on with some funny stories. I know he has those, Uh, but (laughs) you can go check out Horowitz Citro law. Um, We'll put the link in the show notes. If for some reason, you know, someone that's in trouble with the U S government, these are the guys so especially if you live in florida uh, they're fantastic attorneys vince thank you again for being on the show and i really appreciate it
1: thanks for having us thanks for what you do it's important to get this this message and word out
0: oh I, I love it and you've you have such great stories and thank you all for listening to true law stories as benign garlic and vince citro true law stories has been brought to you by videocasestory.com testimonials stink no one wants to watch a testimonial or read a case study You need video case stories for your business. Go to videocasestory.com to learn more.